Welcome to the podcast by Kevin MD, brought to you by the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience. Ambient intelligence augments human capabilities to make our lives easier. The applications are many, especially in healthcare. Ambient clinical intelligence is offsetting the most pressing challenges in healthcare today, such as burnout, physician shortages, physician and patient dissatisfaction, and underperforming financial outcomes by applying the technology to clinical documentation. The Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX for short, utilizes artificial intelligence and natural language processing to automatically document care. It securely listens to and captures the natural clinician-patient encounter conversation unobtrusively and turns that conversation into a clinical note for the clinician's review and signature directly in the electronic health record. You just talk naturally, and DAX does the rest. DAX is being used by thousands of physicians across 30 different specialties nationwide. It has already won the Silver Stevie Award in the healthcare technology category and was ranked number one for improving clinician experience in classes top 20 emerging solutions. To learn more and see DAX in action, visit nuance.com slash DAX in action. That's nuance.com slash D-A-X-I-N-A-C-T-I-O-N to learn more. And now, on to the show. From Kevin MD, I'm Dr. Kevin Poe, and this is the podcast by Kevin MD. Welcome to the podcast by Kevin MD, the only daily medical podcast where we share the stories of the many who intersect with our healthcare system but are rarely heard from. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Poe. Hi, and welcome to the show. Subscribe at kevinemdy.com slash podcast. Get CME for this episode by, by clicking on the CME link in the show notes. Today in the show, we have Edmund Kababe. He's a plastic surgeon. His Kevin MD article is titled, The Fall of the Doctor-Patient Bond, How Corporate Medicine is Changing Healthcare. Edmund, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kevin, and it's a pleasure to be with you. So we'll get into uh, the article in a little bit. Just first off, briefly share your story and journey to where you are today. Yes. So I am. I was born in Aleppo, Syria, of all places. I went to medical school in Damascus University, came to the United States in 1973 after graduating. And I did a surgical internship followed by a four-year general surgery training at the University of Tennessee and two years of plastic surgery at St. Louis University. Following that, I stayed on the faculty at St. Louis University as an employed physician and assistant professor for six years, and then went to a private practice with nine other plastic surgeons in St. Louis area. One year or two years after that, I became the president of a group of all things, and the group continued until 2005, Mm -hmm. where it broke up usually for financial reasons, as usual, with younger people joining us and wanting to work less and make more. So after that, a couple of years later, my son graduated from the plastic surgery residency in Birmingham, Alabama, and joined me. He's been with me now for about 15 years. He's my partner. We call him 49%. And I am very busy with the organized medicine. I am currently 
chaired the, the delegation from Missouri and the chair of caucus for the Heart of America. And also, I'm the chair of the Council on Long Range Planning and Development at the AMA. All right. So before we get into the article, I just want to ask you a question about private practice. As you know, fewer and fewer private practice physicians now. Tell me some of the challenges that you're facing in a private practice environment today. Well, you are always fought by everybody, including employed physician of the hospitals, insurance company. They try to cut you down because they can probably leverage, you know, their influence on you and everybody else. And that's why I'm frustrated I am part, working part-time right now, but still I face every day a challenge. For example, you know, the hospital hired, for example, a plastic surgeon recently who has not done any surgery in three years. Mm. Even though if I do not do a procedure in the last two years, they take that privilege away from me. Now explain that. Other things, you know, harassment by the, the administration, you know, at the least occasion, they try to harass you for not washing your hand in front of the nurses while you wash them probably before the nurse came in. You know, it's a plethora of problems. And they moved us from our office to put the clinic for mercy in the office where we belong. And they were going to bring two plastic surgeons. But COVID hit, they had to fire people. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, we had problem with having poor staff for years until we got finally permanent staff because they were bringing travelers who had no interest mm-hmm. in the place and no interest in helping you. They just want to make their money. So it's a lot of things that are happening, Kevin, and it's the cause of my frustration. Weakness of the patient-physician relationship, it started out first by having the managed care programs. They stole patient that, you know, are in a plan that we did not participate in. And to participate in those plans, we had to accept much lower payment. And that is frustrating because our overhead keep going up and not going down. Mm. And our employees are paid more and they want more benefit. So things like that really bother everybody. Now, you and I probably feel this more. The newcomer to the practice of medicine did not experience the good days. Mm. So they don't see the difference, but we do. And that is the biggest area of frustration we face. Sure. So you talk more about that in your Kevin MD article, the fall of the doctor-patient bond, how corporate medicine is changing healthcare. Now tell me, how did your article come together? My frustration is right now, we have in St. Louis, many hospitals, probably about 20 big hospitals. They're divided into three major networks, Mercy, SSM, and BJC, or Born Jewish uh, uh, Christian. Now, if you try to belong to one without the others and stay out, if you fall out of their favor, then you have nothing left. Mm-hmm. If you're employed by those networks and you decide to leave for any reason, you have to leave town because... The restrictive covenant covered the entire metropolitan area, and it happened to many people. Mm-hmm. You know, other changes in like tra- trying to schedule cases in the OR, you know, it's more difficult for me as a private practitioner than an employed physician. 
they have block time, you know, they, they can share together. So it's, it's one, you know, problem after another. And how can we find it? We're powerless, really. Mm. The reason is, is we are weak. We're not cohesive. We had no good representation that cover all of us. And that's why, you know, I put down in my article how it was in the old days when everybody had to join organized medicine at the state, local, and the national level. And in those days, we decided what to do with the practice of medicine. Now, throughout the years, what weakened this is essentially physicians themselves. Mm-hmm. Physician looking for leadership broke it. You know, the organized medicine started going into specialty society. In my specialty society, plastic surgery, my specialty of plastic surgery, we have probably 15 different organizations. Mm. And they are heavy dues, much more than what we pay for all organized medicine for one of them. And, you know, and then what kind of power they have? They really don't have any power in practice of medicine. They promote the specialty. Mm-hmm. They allow you to present paper, maybe take some courses, try to f- defend your turf against other specialties. But they kind of have no power to go, for example, and ask to repeal SGR. It has to be done through organized medicine because Congress and the Senate cannot sit down with every specialty society and discuss you know, things. So that's a problem. And, uh, you know, we're suffering because of that, I think. And that's why, you know, I brought it to the attention of the readers that, you know, to become part of organized medicine at all levels would probably cost less than $1,500 a year, which is probably a lot less what people pay for their specialty society. But having the AMA now, only having maybe 17 or 18% of the physician paying dues would leave it with a small chest to lobby. Mm. They do have lobbyists, but you know, the 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 capacity to convince congressmen or senators of their you know causes is weaker because they don't have the money for it and the staff for it. Sure. Now give us an example of how some of the frustrations that you just talked about, whether it's time in the OR and some of the private practice frustrations. Why should patients care about that? Because patients see this and they see a lot of physicians squabbling amongst themselves. Tell us, how does all these issues that affect us as physicians, how does it affect patients? Well, it affected me in a big way. As an example, you know, right now I can tell you I was the main plastic surgeon in multiple hospitals. And I was the chief in at least three hospitals. And we had, you know, taken a lot of consult and took care of the patient. And your rating, you know, in the, in the hospital, they go over the patient and complication and everything. It was excellent. Yet, they brought in somebody who's weak, who failed probably in private practice. Mm. And they gave them all the referrals now because they're, most of the ERs belong to the hospital. Most of the hospitalists belong to the hospital. Most of the internists and primary care doctors belong to the hospital. And the funny thing is when those doctors get sick, they come to me. They don't go to the employed one Mm. unless they have no benefit outside their network. So that is frustrating. And, you know, we, of course, still have to take care of them when they, you know, seek our help. 
Now, uh, in the OR right now, I'm, if I have cases to schedule, you know, sometimes I have to wait six weeks to get my cases on, while the employed physician have a quota where they can have, you know, block time, they can share together and put the patient in. Now, if my, me and my son have a block time and we don't fill it, you know, for a reason like travel or whatever, they take it away from you. Mm. Well, they conserve it for the others. Going to the executive committee of a hospital, you know, it's mostly now employed physician. You go to the bylaws, you know, they keep changing them because they have the votes for them. You know, so I don't know what else to tell you, but, you know, it's, it's frustrating. I'm glad I'm toward the end of my practice. I still enjoy working and I'm still good at what I do because I'm sure that there are many eyes over what I do at work from a hospital employee. So you've been involved with organized medicine for decades now. Give us an example of how organized medicine, the organizations that you've been involved in, how has that moved the needle and improved the practice of physicians? Okay. So let me start at the local level. Yeah. At the local level, you know, one time we've had a hospital ID doc, you know, infectious disease. He criticized the Mercy Hospital at one point for having a smaller ratio of nurses to patients. And he made a statement to the press that this affects patient care. He was fired. We came together and demonstrated and returned him to the medical staff, and he became the medical staff president on the state level. We have in Missouri, for example, we are fighting every year hundreds of bills to allow nurse practitioner to be independent, CRNA to be independent, physical therapists are independent, pharmacists from prescribing and doing things. So it's endless. And the state's medical society is also in our state is fairly good because they we have legislators who are also conservative. So our protected reimbursement, like, for example, for work comp is still good. While many other states, because of lack of interest of these physicians in the state and supporting the state, they now pay them for work comp less than Medicare. And Medicare is pitiful, especially for hand surgery. I am also certified in hand surgery as an added qualification. So, and, and, and of course, at the national level, the AMA is behind everything that we gain, you know, like trying to uh, remove the cuts that were imposed on us this year. And now they're working on changing the whole formula on how Medicare is reimbursed based on inflation. We repealed the SGR. You know, it's, it's countless issues that come nationally that the AMA interfere on our behalf. Now, as you know, we live in a very polarized society and with the physician community is no exception. Physicians are among a spectrum when it comes to their worldview and their political view as well. Now, given that context, how do you expect a single organization to represent physicians when physicians, as you know, can't even agree among themselves? You know, the AMA right now, as you probably know, has House of Delegates. If you are a, let's say, an anesthesiologist, and you are a dual member in the AMA and an anesthesia group, you get, for 1,000 of you, you get one representative in the House of Delegates. 
Okay. So even if your, you know, specialty is, you know, fairly small, but you have a good, you know, dual membership, you get more representation in EMA. What TMA will do is people in the House of Delegates representative present resolution. And they're discussed, they're, you know, approved or disapproved or whatever. And then the lobbyists carry on. No other organization have that capacity to do this as of now. Now, maybe the internal medicine group is a large group, but it, its power is in the House of Delegates by the number of people that have dual membership in the organization. And if you look at, for example, the hospital association, almost all the hospitals are in it. The lawyer, they're all members of it. What do they do? They have the power. They push for their represent for a, a lawyer to get, become member of Congress and Senate, pass the law that pleases them and allow them to have more business and opening. The hospital always asks for increased reimbursement. They lead the idea that without them, the uninsured would not be taken care of. Mm-hmm. Physicians always forget, and I've faced this before, physicians forget that the hospital are getting federal and state money to take care of uninsured and also are tax exempt, most of them. While we don't, and they require us to take care of the patients that have no insurance for free. And if you'd like that enthusiasm for it, they can punish you. We have an organization that's good. It's right now, it's healthy in the AMA. We have a very good House of Representatives and good lobbyists, but they are not powerful enough and they don't have the funding enough to be to have more leverage. Now, how would you convince physicians who may not necessarily agree with all of the AMA stances to help join the organization? Because as you said, the organization is only as strong as the number of members. So how do you go about convincing physicians who traditionally may not have agreed with what the AMA stood for? Okay, so let's say we have now two parties in the United States, right? Republican and Democrat. If you are not participating in the election, how can you leverage your ideas, you know, and push for them? You have to participate. If you don't like what the AMA like is doing, and I don't like many of the things that the AMA is doing, and that's mostly because it's pushed by the newer generation of student and resident and fellows, and even the young physician. But if I don't participate, then I have no input. And the rug will be pulled from under my feet. So I would tell those people, join in if you want your ideas to be the policy of the AMA and what is the practice of medicine. You know, the student and resident, unfortunately, pushed for a lot of bad things, I think, from shortening the hour of work, to shortening the years of work, and now they're trying to shorten the years of medical school, and it's going to hurt them. I used to be in a group, plastic surgeon, where we had people that had the five years instead of the traditional seven years minimum. They were weaker. They did not have experience. We were not able to tackle all parts of the body. They made less money, but yet they wanted more. And the same for the student and resident. They're coming now out of residency with the lack of, you know, exposure, they sometimes make the bad choices of jo- joining a residency or a program that 
is not good. Or, you know, try to avoid working the longer hour to get the more experience. In general surgery, for example, if you don't do the five years and you do the chief year, they would not let you do any big surgeries. They think they're going to be a lost case. So, you know, that's what it is. You know, people don't think about the impact of that's going to have on their, you know, from their decision on their future. We're talking to Edmund Kababe. He's a plastic surgeon. His Kevin MD article is titled The Fall of the Doctor-Patient Bond, How Corporate Medicine is Changing Healthcare. Edmund, tell us some of your take-home messages that you want to leave with the Kevin MD audience. I would say if we don't organize, we are going to continue to fail. And uh, everybody's going to take advantage of us. Join organized medicine at all levels because through them, you can have more leverage in practice of medicine. Edmund, thank you so much for sharing your time and insight. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks, Kevin. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the podcast by Kevin MD. To share your story and appear on the show, visit kevinmd.com.